having a versatile, high-quality piece of clothing feels great. But having a whole closet full of favorites feels even better. American Giant puts the quality, durability, and comfort they're famous for into everything you need for your spring days. From premium t-shirts and jeans to lightweight French terry joggers and their legendary best hoodie ever. Get 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's American-Giant.com, code S-T-A-P-L-E, 20. Welcome to the Three Down Nation podcast. I'm Justin Dunk, joined by John Hodge and J.C. Abbott. Today, we're discussing the Ottawa Red Blacks free agent list. Henry Burris campaigning to become the next head coach of the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. Sports playoff football in full swing this week. CFL attendance increasing modestly in 2023. And Neil Lumsden stating that he's not interested in becoming the next president of the Edmonton Elks. But first, the Tiger Cats visit the Alouettes on Saturday as the teams match up in the Eastern semifinal. The Owls swept the three-game regular season series and are currently three-and-a-half-point home favorites. Montreal won this matchup last season by a score of 28-17. Who do you believe wins to advance to the East final against those Toronto Argonauts? I've got the Montreal Alouettes, and my reasoning is pretty simple. The Alouettes went 11-0 and this year against every team that wasn't BC, Toronto, or Winnipeg. Now, that bodes terribly for the Alouettes beyond this weekend because they went 0-7 against those teams. <laughs> but to be the Alouettes were consistently effective yet unspectacular, right? They don't turn the ball over a lot. Their defense is very good. They generate takeaways. Marc-Antoine Decroix, I think, is going to be the most outstanding Canadian of the East Division, partly for his ability to generate those takeaways. Uh, The kicking game is a little bit of a concern, but that's really the only spot you can point to and say, look, that is not consistent about this team. Cody Fajardo's numbers were anything but spectacular, but again, he was consistent. He made few mistakes. He rarely put that team in a position where they were dealing with poor field position. And Joseph Zema, by the way, their punter, finished number one this year in net punting. And James Letcher Jr., what a revelation. He's been in the return game with Chandler Worthy out. So with all due respect to the Ticats, who I see as a bit more of a boomer bust team, I've got the Alouettes in this one because I think against competition that's a little below them, they are even keel and a great opportunity to take advantage of that. You mentioned that 11-0 record against teams with a sub-500 record. And to me, that almost seems too good to be true, right? It's proven time and time again. But when was the last time we saw somebody with a record like that not have it bust? At some point. And to me, this feels like an opportunity where that trend all season long all of a sudden goes up in smoke against an opponent that you're very, very, very familiar with. Obviously, these two teams played last week. It wasn't necessarily the game plan that we will see this week, but they've played three times. I think it's tough to beat another opponent four times. And the Hamilton Tiger Cats, like you mentioned, Hodge, are boom or bust. And I think in this circumstance, they have a lot of boom potential. I love that Alouette's defense. They're going to be a real threat that Scott Milanovic is going to have to figure out how to beat. But the Alouette's offense doesn't scare me at all. With Cody Fajardo at the helm and William Stanback, who looks 
let's be frank, a little bit past his prime at this stage. And there are some weapons on that Hamilton Tiger Cats offense that do scare me. Tim White being one and James Butler being the other in the backfield. And with that two quarterback system with Bill Levi Mitchell or Matthew Shields, I think Orlando Steinhauer can ride the hot hand, whoever it may be in this game. And there's a potential for the Hamilton Tiger Cats to shock the world here and advance to the East final. I hate the two quarterback system. Believe I Mitchell even came out and said his younger self would not like it. And I totally understand it, but I do think the tiger cats are the smart play here on the spread and also on the money line for a number of reasons. Let's go with Montreal first, because JC, you alluded to it. The offense is kind of blase blase, but it's been effective. Cody Fajardo by and large part hasn't made a bunch of explosive plays or jaw dropping kind of highlight real moments but he's been solid in terms of protecting the football and they've really stuck to that run game. So that's a credit to Jason Moss. He said he was going to change his body language and his temperament. He's done that. And he's also run the ball more with the Alouettes. I think the Owls defense is very much underrated and Tyrese Beverett would like nothing more than to end the Ticats season yet again, because that's where <laughs> he started his career. He's been outstanding. I don't think there's been enough talk about him. I agree with Hodge. Marc-Antoine Decroix has been an absolute game changer. He's made big-time plays consistently throughout 2023. And Sean Lemon coming there infused that consistent pass rush that this team sorely needed. So it wouldn't surprise me if Montreal won. I actually think this is going to be a really close game. But <clears throat> similar to what JC alluded to with Hamilton, Tim White scares me. James Butler scares me on offense. Austin Mack can be really good, but I think... We saw more plays from him earlier in the season, and now defenses have adjusted at least a little bit to him later in the year, and he hasn't had those big-time productive games like he had earlier in the year. So I like the way that Hamilton is trending. I think JC's made this point on this podcast before. Richard Leonard has played at a very high level for the Tiger Cats this season, should command a big payday in the offseason, whether that's re-signing with Hamilton or going elsewhere. He's a pending free agent. And I think that group has really come together. And the biggest part for me is Scott Milanovic running this offense. Now, it's a different voice. And I don't think Tommy Condell doesn't know offensive football. But I think that has just brought about a new energy around this group. So that's why I like the Tiger Cats against the spread. And also sprinkle, sprinkle, sprinkle some cashish on the money line. Yeah, I this you said the line is three and a half. At that point, I would be tempted to put a little bit of money on Hamilton. I think three or less, I'm on the Montreal side because I do think the Alouettes are going to win this game. Here's a stat for you boys. The Alouettes have forced 20, uh, 48 takeaways this season. That ranks second in the CFL, and they are plus 14 in the turnover differential. That, to me, goes to show why they are so even keel and happy to be unspectacular because they – why, why play a risky style of football when you are, on average, essentially winning the turnover battle by one per game, right? They went plus 14 over an 18-game season. Conversely, I'll use an example from the team we're going to talk about in the next, next segment. The BC Lions finished 12-6 and six this year, despite being minus 12 in the turnover differential. They finished seventh in takeaways. So, to me, the Alouettes, the best definition I could give would be conservative but opportunistic, right? They wait for their mis their opponents to make a mistake, and they take full advantage. A perfect example would be this past weekend when the Ticats fumbled the opening kickoff return. Tariq McAllister 
had the ball knocked out by Mark Antoine DeCroix. And Cody Fajardo went, what was it, two plays? Boom, boom, into the end zone, Tyson Philpott. That's not how Montreal's offense generally looks. But they went, oh, you just you just stubbed your toe? Okay, well, now I'm going to make you eat it. Boom, six points in the first minute of the game. So to me, that is how the Alouettes have won all season. That formula's not worked against competition that's better. But this week, I do think they are the better team. And to touch quickly on the Ticats quarterback situation, I'll just say this. The Al- or the, the, the Ticats, after you know a disappointing season from Dane Evans, they went out and they got what they expected was the CFL equivalent of a Ferrari, right? They went out and got Bolivar Mitchell, and they paid him half a million dollars to be their franchise guy. And now like in the an most- older model, though, not a new one. Yeah, okay. One that's but been used it- a little bit. A used Ferrari is still a Ferrari, my friend. And they paid a Ferrari price. And now come the most important game of the year, they're going to leave their Ferrari in the garage willingly for parts of the race (laughs) to turn it over to Matthew Schultz, who I do think is an underrated guy, but a guy who I would equate to like a Toyota RAV4. No disrespect (laughs) to the Toyota RAV4. I drive a Toyota RAV4. It's a great vehicle. But it's not a Ferrari, and nobody would ever mistake it as such. So to be the two-quarterback system, whether it works or not, it did work, obviously, a couple of years ago as Jeremiah Masoli and Dave Evans helped the Ticats get to a home great cup in 2021. That's the Ticats' goal in 2023. But what I'm saying is, obviously, the Ticats should not be paying Ferrari price for Toyota RAV4 production. We need a three-down nation article comparing CFL quarterbacks to cars. I like it. What's that one Someone that ex- get Josh Josh on the line? What's what's yeah. that car that exploded when it got hit? Because I feel like there's there's you know a Taylor Cordelius co- comparison there potentially, or I don't know. There's some lemons. But th- <laughs> would it would it be the DeLorean? Oh, yeah. I'm just thinking out loud here. Anyways, uh, <laughs> to to your point though, Hodge about the quarterbacks and the turnovers. I think a lot of people are going to hear that statistic and how many turnovers that the Alouettes have generated this season, and think that bodes extremely poorly for Bo Levi Mitchell because we've seen. At times over the last couple of years, he's been a little bit turnover prone. I mean, we go back to the first time he returned from injury this year. and He threw five picks in that game and looked absolutely horrific, right? He's looked a lot better coming back. But to me, when I look at this matchup, I just keep going back to the West semifinal last year. I was in BC Place watching and how the Calgary Stampeders looked terrific in that game until... The fourth quarter when Bo Levi Mitchell came off the bench and all of a sudden for a brief glimmer for 15 minutes looked like the Bo Levi Mitchell of old. And I think in a big moment when everything comes down and the chips are on the table, I still think Bo Levi Mitchell for all his faults now, and there are many of them, has the capacity to turn it on and turn back the clock for a moment and be that guy. And if he can do it this week, it's going to be awfully hard for the Alouettes to beat them with an offense that I don't think can match up with the firepower. The main thing about that comparison, though, JC, is there was no pressure on Bolivar Mitchell in that situation, right? They were going to go down guns a-blazing. Now there's the pressure of likely being the starter because it seems like that's what's going to happen here. And having expectations because he's a franchise guy just based on his Ferrari-level payment, according to Hodge. So I think it's different. That West semifinal, he'd come off the bench, chuck it around. If there were a couple picks and Calgary never got back in the game, well, it was over anyways. I agree. And 
to be quite honest, I think if Bolivar Mitchell was going to put together that kind of performance and was capable of putting together that kind of performance for an extended period of time, we would have seen it this year. Yes, he had injuries, but he was healthy week one, and I was at that game in Winnipeg, and he stunk, and he's done a lot of stinking since. So, who knows? And by the way, the best story to come out of this game would be Bolivar Mitchell throwing for five touchdowns. So I'm not rooting against him. That would be amazing for three down nation if Bolivar Mitchell came out of the game of his life. I'm just saying I'm not holding my breath. And, and the CFL. And like, the if CFL. If you're looking at it from the league office perspective, you'd rather have Bolivar Mitchell looking great, Absolutely. throwing it back, and then traveling down the QEW to Toronto than, I guess, what are we calling? Boring Montreal? <laughs> Well, could you imagine the hype in Hamilton for that great cup if Bolivar Mitchell went out and threw five touchdowns in the East Semi and then knocked off the Argos in the East Final? My God, they have to double the beer orders. Seriously. You're just feeding into everybody's CFL conspiracies. I'm not saying it's a conspiracy. I'm saying if that were possible or if that happened, I, I don't think it's possible. I think if that was possible, we would have seen it this year. And one last note before we go to the next segment. Ferrari, if you're listening, we're open for sponsorships. I'd happily <laughs> drive your vehicle as an endorsement. I don't think they want that now that you've compared them to a broken down Bolivar Mitchell. Yes. Well, I didn't necessarily. I, I said that the Ticats the thought they were getting a Ferrari, and they did. They paid for a Ferrari. Ferrari never came. They thought they were getting the Ferrari that was in storage and hadn't been worked on in a while. Like, there's a recent story out there of a Ferrari, I think it was, that was buried because somebody stole it. Like, that's the kind of bully by Mitchell we're talking about. And you don't know if it's going to run. And the Ticats fired up that old Ferrari in week one, like you said, and it didn't work. They needed to put in a lot of time to that engine to get it to the point where bully by Mitchell has looked the last handful of weeks. We'll see if it's actually tuned up in the East Semi. And something I always hear Dwayne Ford, our good friend, say is it makes sense to pay players for what they will do not pay players for what they have done. And right now it feels like the Ticats paid Bolivar Mitchell expecting him to be 2018 Bo, when in reality they've just paid him for what he did in 2018. Cause he's, I know you want to move on Hodge, but real quick, let's just think of this right now. Okay. Tiger cats are going to this game, planning to use a two QB system with the guy that they paid over $500,000 for. What does that say about his future in Hamilton and how this result could impact it? Well, to me, it says he's not coming back on that contract, no matter what, because why would you bring him back? And and for the record, when we're talking about Matthew Schilt taking reps away from Bo, it should be noted that he is not the only quarterback with a better quarterback rating in Hamilton this year than Bo, because Taylor Powell, the rookie, also has a better quarterback rating than Bo. And it's not even close. Powell is at 89.5. 10 touchdowns, 9 picks. Bolivar Mitchell's at 67.5 with 6 touchdowns to 10 interceptions. Despite playing only 6 games, both threw more picks than Schultz and Powell. So obviously he's not coming back on that $500,000 contract. He's going to have to renegotiate or go somewhere else. Or maybe that places the TSN panel. We don't know. Bolivar Mitchell, I think, has a very bright future in the CFL. Off the field, on the field, maybe that ship has sailed. Important caveat to that. If he goes out and wins a Grey Cup at home for the team with the longest Grey Cup drought, yeah, he's not coming back on that contract. He's coming back with a raise. Let's do no yeah, bones about if. it because it's a big if. if he wins that Grey Cup at home, all all logic 
goes out the window at that stage. If he wins that Grey Cup at home in Hamilton, and I'm Bo Levi Mitchell, I would retire. I would also retire. I would not retire because I'm leaving my Ferrari money on the table, which makes <laughs> no sense. But I get what you guys are saying from a storybook perspective. But no, I'm, you might I'm be able to get that Ferrari money from TSN. Uh, you're not getting 500 grand from TSN to sit on the panel. But I, I, who knows? I've never negotiated with TSN for a panel salary, so I don't know. But I, I doubt he'd be getting a raise going to the panel. <laughs> Mind you, you take a lot less hits on the panel. That's true. And you end on a high note, Dep- like in Seinfeld. You always want to end on a high, boys. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Seinfeld, that dated 90s sitcom that apparently is the best show ever. It's timeless sitcom. I've actually uh. started watching Seinfeld. It's pretty good, I, I and I like it. I, oh. I have no idea why anybody would say it's the best show, period, ever. If you want to say it's the best 90s sitcom, yeah, okay, there's probably an argument there. Anyways. The Stampeders visit the BC Lions on Saturday for the West semifinal. Calgary is a six and a half point underdog for this one. BC won the first two matchups between these teams this year, though the Stamps got the last laugh two weeks ago when they went into BC place and won 41 to 16. Can the Lions knock off Calgary in the West semifinal for the second straight year, or can the Stampeders pull the upset? To me, this is the more intriguing of the two matchups because we got a chance to see it two weeks ago and Calgary laid their cards on the table, right? They showed the game plan for how to beat this BC Lions team as an underdog, which was drop nine into coverage and make Vernon Adams Jr. have to go through his reads and make decisions late in the play and let a three-man rush or at most one blitzer get after this questionable BC Lions offensive line and then offensively pound the ball down the throat because the Lions simply aren't big enough up front or sound enough against the run to stop that type of game plan. And it worked in spectacular fashion, right? That was a blowout for a heavy, heavy underdog going into that game. But now you've seen it. And if you're the BC Lions, you've had – a bye in the last week of the season and then this whole week of preparation to correct your errors and figure out how you're going to stop this Stampeders team, which should come out with a very similar game plan of how to attack you. And to me, that puts advantage back to the BC Lions because Jordan Maximic is an offensive coordinator. I think you give him enough time to scheme up a solution to that defense, he's going to find one. And if Vernon Adams Jr. can get comfortable with what he's going to see in this game, they don't need the defense to adjust. They simply need to put up points, put up points quickly and early with that high-powered offense. And if those two can make the adjustments necessary, it will shut down Calgary's run game early, and then it's all advantage BC lines. That's what I think is going to happen in this game. Man, you're out here talking like Brent Monson, the defensive coordinator for the Stampeders, is going to walk in here with the exact same game plan at BC Place and think it's going to work. I'm sure he's going to have other schemes. There'll be wrinkles. Exactly. That's what I'm saying, man. You're a high school football coach. Come on, JC. He's not going to do the same thing. So the Lions can adjust, and that's part of the chess match and why playoff football is so interesting because it's a one-off. This game, to me, what's the most effective, right? Like, 
we've seen it throughout the year. That game plan, whoever's used that particular system has beaten Vernon Adams Jr., or those are the games he's struggled. So that's what I'm saying is they've showed the most effective one already. There'll be wrinkles on top of it, but you're not going to all of a sudden send heavy blitz because VA is showing he can beat that this this season. Agreed. So this thing comes down to me from an analysis perspective. Honestly, just the feel around these teams. I don't have a great vibe about the Lions, especially late in the season. Yeah, there's some wins there, but this was a team that, should have lost to the Ottawa Red Blacks at home in mid-September that almost lost to the Tiger Cats on the road when they weren't feeling very good and then get throttled the last week of the season. Now, there might not have been a ton of incentive there because Winnipeg was in the driver's seat to get that number one seed in the West Division. But you know, I'm just not feeling the flow, to be quite honest. And we can talk X's and O's, but I think it's more about the Jimmy and the Joes in this case because the Stampeders have a bunch of confidence with what they did last week. And as long as there are some tweaks on that game plan and they just commit to running the football, then I'm just sitting here salivating at the thought of getting Calgary at plus six and a half in controlled conditions, a place where they just went a couple of weeks ago and they have all kinds of mojo. And that's why I like the stamps. You know, am I nervous? And we talked about this a little bit last week on the pod about potentially betting on Jake Merritt. Yes, but you don't need to ask him to do too many things. He's got some of his guys like Reggie Begleton back in the lineup, who I think can be key factors. That offensive line hasn't been amazing, but they're much better, much better Excuse me, running the football. And I think they have some guys like Mike Rose who can be difference makers if you're only going to rush three against Vernon Adams Jr. So everything seems like it's Calgary. Sometimes that worries me in the CFL because funky things happen. It goes the opposite way. It wouldn't surprise me if BC wins, but I like the feeling around the Stamps going in. Yeah, I, I was pretty high on the Stampeders after they went into Vancouver and won. I mean, I, I do think, obviously, the BC Lions are the more talented team. BC's got the best receiving core in the CFL. To me, they've got the best passing game of the CFL, certainly from a scheme perspective with Jordan Maximic. The Calgary Stampeders right now have Reggie Bagleton and then a bunch of guys who just kind of are also on the team in that receiving core and are dropping a lot of balls and have looked very unspectacular. The great equalizer... However, when it comes to talent, is physicality, right? The Stampeders went into Vancouver, and they punched the Lions in the mouth and said, yeah, we know you're faster, we know you're more athletic, but we're going to punch you in the mouth, and what are you going to do about it? And that game plan worked. It worked in space. They won by 25 points in a game. They were expected to, I think I think the line was like 10, right? Then the Stampeders hosted the regular season finale and they rolled over like dogs against the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. They were awful. They didn't even show anything, though. It's it's football in your home stadium. The by that same logic, the Bombers didn't have to show anything. It was Winnipeg's twos and in many cases threes and fours against what was mostly Calgary's ones. Yes, Reggie Bagleton didn't play. No, Cameron Judge didn't play. But the Stampeders rested three starters. The Bombers rested 10. And a lot of their other starters were out by the second quarter. Calgary, I thought, was an abysmal performance. The, the confidence that I felt after their win in BC was mostly gone. So for that reason, I am taking the Lions. I'm happy to take the Lions against the spread up to six and a half. Above that, a touchdown or more, I'm taking the Stampeders because I do think that the Stamps can keep this one close if they use that same mentality. But I also feel like... The Stamps might have squandered their chance here. How do you get psyched up 
for another game in the same spot against the same team with the same game plan, because that's the only way Calgary can win this game is if they run the ball 35 times and Kadeem Carey goes off with 20 touches, Peyton Logan goes off, you mix in some other guys. So I am taking the BC Lions in this one as much as I will say the Calgary Stampeders did momentarily impress me momentarily. Then they choked like dogs. Hey, choked like dogs they did yeah no it's a fair assessment and i think that's how you would describe their performance in this exact same game last year because it 365 days ago the three of us sat in the same spots and had basically the same conversation about how the calgary stampeders had a perfect game plan for how to beat the BC Lions. Like all they had to do was hand it off to Kadeem Carey and Diedrich Mills and Peyton Logan and just watch that running game run through them. And it didn't work because that's how the running game works when the opposing offense comes out and puts up points. You can't stick with it. And I think they went away from it too early last year. If uh, Dave Dickinson had a do-over. He would have called a few more running plays when they were only down by 10 points early in that game and stuck with it and tried to reestablish and get back into this game. But ultimately, what happened was what always happens against running teams when they go up against a strong offense, and that's that they're forced to do something else. And there's nothing that the Stampeders can do offensively to prevent that from happening, that your defense has to take care of it to ensure that the running game can keep going. Because if not, this game gets thrust onto the shoulders of Jake Mayer. And we saw that happen last year, and he was found wanting, right? He got pulled in the fourth quarter of that game. Now, there's an argument to be had that perhaps that motivates Jake in this game, that he's got a chip on his shoulder, that he needs to redeem himself. There's also an argument to be had that we've already seen what he can do when the chips are down and that there is no reason to side with him any further. I would lean towards that argument rather than the redemption argument, particularly because I don't think he has the horses around him as Hodge alluded to in the receiving core to get the job done. If the Lions can cover Reggie Bagleton, that is it for the Calgary Stampeders because as good as some of the receivers have been at points in their careers, they're dropping the ball right now at an egregious rate higher than I think any team I've ever seen in my time watching the CFL, including guys who should be stars like Mark and Michelle. And if you throw this on the shoulders of Jake Mayer and you throw it on the shoulders of those receivers, I don't think the Calgary Stampeders can step up to the plate. JC, I'm curious how you feel about the situation around Sione Tehama and whether he plays or doesn't play and the impact of that on this game. Well, I think it's a tough one because to Hema, every defensive lineman gets the, the bigger accolades for their pass rushing. And to Hema has been fairly effective at times as a pass rusher, but I think he's one of the more solid edge setters on the BC lines uh, defensive line certainly a better run defender than Matthew Betts, who gets all the accolades for his you know, Canadian sack record, but is an extremely poor run defender at times who has very little interest in holding his position and, and engaging with a tackle out there, which is not, you know, it's a knock on him as a player, but it's not uh, the knock that it once was. This is a passing game, and he does 
that aspect of the game at a higher level than almost anyone else in the league. So this is not me ripping on Matthew Betts, but he's just not very good as a run defender. And I think that's true of a lot of the Lions defensive line. Sierra Tam, I think, is a little bit better run defender than he is a pass rusher. Now, he can appeal that suspension and potentially play in this game because I'm sure Hodge will talk endlessly about the CFL has been extremely inconsistent in terms of how long an appeal takes to be processed. Heck, he might play the entire playoffs before that's determined. To me, that's a risk, though, because if you appeal now and you win this game and all of a sudden the suspension comes next week, now you're missing an even more important game for your team against a team that's, oh, by the way, also much better at running the football than the Calgary Stampeders for as much as we've talked about the Stamps running game. The Winnipeg Blue Bombers blow theirs out of the water with Brady Oliveira. So if it were me, I wouldn't appeal. I would eat that suspension this week in the hopes that my teammates could step up to the plate. But it seems like it would trend towards an appeal for Tehama, hoping that the league will be slow to justice and allow him to play for multiple weeks. JC, are you saying that Brady Oliveira is a better running back than Kadeem Carey? Like one is yes. better than the other. They're not both exactly the same and have little to no value. <laughs> I, I have said on multiple occasions that the analytics opinion of running backs is not that they are identical in talent. And Brady Oliveira is better than Kadeem Carey right now. Just wanted that on the record. By the way, it's all, it's, I'm happy it's, to put it on the record. It's amazing how time has changed that, right? Because Brady Oliveira was pretty terrible, actually, out of the gate in 2022. So much so that people were saying that the Bombers should just trade back for Andrew Harris. And all of a sudden, over the last two years, well, and Kadeem Carey, by the way, was on like record-breaking pace for part of last season. And now all of a sudden, Kadeem Carey is often kind of forgot about. And Brady Oliveira, I think, should be the MOP based on the candidates that are available in the West Division. By the way, he did, spoiler alert, get my vote for West Division MOP. Vernon Adams Jr. got my second place MOP vote. So we'll have to see. And by the way, yeah, the appeals thing, that's just a fact. The CFL has, in its history, recent history, taken over two months to decide on an appeal. Appeals are also sometimes expedited in a matter of a couple of days. So your guess is as good as mine as to what's going to happen if and when Tiama does uh, appeal the suspension. JC, who did you vote for? West MLP. I voted for Brady Oliveira. And Vernon Adams Jr. was my number two. Yeah. All right. So it makes three of us. Laying it on the to table. Make sure. I thought you were going to go Vernon Adams Jr. there, but Hey, look, the, the last couple weeks, I think if, if Vernon Adams Jr. had shown out against Calgary in that final game of the season – because of my bias against running backs and because I think <laughs> quarterbacks are are inherently more important, I would have skewed to VA. But VA did not respond well in that last week. I think it was arguably his worst performance of the season in the half that he played. And Brady Oliveira just keeps chugging. So how could you not vote for that guy based on what he's done. And we can have all sorts of discussions about the value of his position. You all know where I side on that. But if we have to base it on most outstanding, he has been 
in the context of what he is asked to do, the most outstanding player in the CFL this year. Let's get a couple more West votes on the record because it was interesting. MOP, you essentially had Brady Oliveira against Vernon Adams Jr. MODP, most outstanding defensive player. It seems like people are tilting toward Matthew Betts. He's who got my vote. And then you talk about MOC, most outstanding Canadian, and it's Oliveira versus Betts. I went with Betts because I felt like him setting that record was more impressive. But then that begs the argument, and I thought about this while I was filling up my ballot, should Betts have been in conversation and perhaps did we miss out on, at least at the team level, Betts not being the Lions' most outstanding player? It's weird to think of, but when you break it down, just looking at most outstanding Canadian, it's a really hard one to decide and vote on. Well, I'll be frank with you both. I did not vote for Betts as my team nominee for most outstanding defensive player for the Lions. Uh, I believe I was perhaps the only dissenting voice there, although I did vote him for most outstanding Canadian, and that was not unanimous either. So there's clearly someone else who had uh, a dissenting opinion on that award. I voted for him for that. I didn't for most outstanding defensive player because as good as Matthew Betts has been, and he has been fantastic, uh, I think there have been fits and starts to his season and there have been occasional gaps to his game. And stack sack numbers are not the best way to measure the effectiveness of a defensive lineman. Now, he's very good at pressures as well. He's near the top of the league in that. But I think his sack numbers are slightly inflated, right? He probably deserved 13 of them, and he got an extra five. That's what happens over the course of a season is you get a couple lucky breaks here, a couple lucky breaks there. You add a few more. Conversely, the opposite is true. A guy like Anthony Lanier in Saskatchewan has very similar pressure numbers to Matthew Betts, but ends the year with only five sacks because he flushes it to Miles Brown or DeMarcus Christmas or Pete Robertson, and they mop up on a play that he made, right? So to me, the pure sack numbers for Betts are not as convincing as maybe some other people view them as. My most outstanding defensive player and it would have been my my MODP for the entire league as well as for the BC Lions was Gary Peters, the cornerback for BC. I think he's been outstanding this year, uh, undeniably the best at his position. Uh, I don't know what his numbers are now because they're not published every week, but going into the la- that last matchup against Calgary, a matchup where they only allowed 123 passing yards, he had a passer rating against of 47.5 for the entire season. And he did not allow a single touchdown for all 18 games, not one thrown against him. To me, those are compelling numbers for a defensive back things that don't necessarily end up on the regular box score. He would have been my selection for the lions. I'll rip off my whole ballot in like 10 seconds here. MOP. I voted for Brady Oliveira and Vernon Adams jr. Is my second place. Defensive player, I took Matthew Betts, followed by Willie Jefferson. Most outstanding Canadian, I voted for Brady Oliveira, with Matthew Betts being my second-place vote. Most outstanding offensive lineman, I had Jamarcus Hardrick over Jarrell Broxton. Most outstanding special teams player, I voted for Sean White, with a backup being Rene Paradis. Most outstanding rookie, I voted 
for Kai Gray out of Edmondson with Adam Corsak as my second. And for head coach, I voted for Craig Dickens. I mean, Mike O'Shea. Mike O'Shea got my vote <laughs> for coach. And Rick Campbell got my second vote. And out east, all of my first place votes went to the Toronto Argonauts. The only exception to that would be my first place vote for most outstanding Canadian went to Marc-Antoine Decois of the Montreal Alouettes. Every other, every other position, Chad Kelly, MOP, Darius Pickett, MODP, etc., went to the Argos. Hodge, I'm curious, in your opinion, and when you voted, how did you break it down between having Betts as your MODP and Oliveira as your most outstanding Canadian? Well, I mean, I, I think Brady at this point is is the most outstanding player of the players who are available. And at the end of the day, and I, I have a column that I'm hopefully releasing late this week, early next week, about how the awards could look versus how probably should look versus how they currently look. But I simply thought what Brady Oliveira accomplished was exceptional, not just for a Canadian player. I mean, yes, he became the second Canadian player ever to reach 1,500 rushing yards, 2,000 yards from scrimmage. Uh, but between his 13 touchdowns, all of that, the way that, and, and by the way, I do think that when players are very, very close in terms of their production, that ultimately the, the quality of the team should be the uh, the tie-breaking factor. So I, I thought what, what Brady did was simply more outstanding than what Matthew Betts did uh, for the reasons that JC partially laid out. I think Josh Banks is a criminally underrated player in the interior of BC's defensive line. Preach! Who, who helps Matthew Betts get to the quarterback sometimes. Um, so it was an easy pick for me for most outstanding Canadian. Brady was 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 simply the best there. And then MODP, I mean, I, I you know, Mike Awe had a million tackles in Calgary. A million tackles don't really impress me. Jake Ceresna was fantastic at Edmonton, but the team was terrible as a whole. And Larry Dean, again, a million tackles, great. But a million tackles on an underperforming defense is isn't that special. And so to me, the, the choice for MODP was, was, was pretty easy with 18 sacks. Willie Jefferson, I will say, I think flies under the radar a little bit because the sack numbers were down, but he had 13 knockdowns. Like, like a knockdown is almost as valuable as a sack because you're killing the play either way with a sack. You typically obviously generate negative yardage for the offense, but 13 knockdowns plus 11 sacks. You're, you're essentially single-handedly stopping 24 plays by yourself as an edge rusher. So that was that was my logic. Dunk, who did you vote for for most outstanding Canadian? Yeah, I just said it quickly there, but I went bets. I oh, just you did? felt okay. like yeah, him having the Canadian sack record spoke to me. I mean, the opinions that you guys have, I obviously totally respect it makes a lot of sense, but it was difficult. Like I'm going back and forth on this mm-hmm. thinking, okay, well who had a bigger impact on the game? Who drew more attention because I think that's Something that even though JC, you want to say, well, you got to be lucky to get some of these extra sacks that Betts had, he's no doubt drawing more attention on passing downs, whether that's teams sliding their protection to him, chipping him, running back on that side of the field, what have you. He's got to deal with a lot of that stuff, but I think it's extremely close. Brady Oliveira had an outstanding season. I just thought it's rare to see a Canadian set a record and then you don't even (laughs) vote for him for that award. So it was ultra close, but that's the way that I went. Well, and it'll be very yeah, interesting I, to see if Brady wins MOP, but not MOC. That yeah. Would be, that, would, that wouldn't make any sense. But anyways, and, that's, that's how the votes go. And I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that Vernon Adams Jr. 
wins the MOP nod over Briggy Oliveira because I know there are some people who still voted that way. And Zach Caleros is the West All-Star at QB, which would be insane. I know people who voted that way. And I, you know, I I disagree with it fundamentally, but I can see that argument as to why you would place your votes that way. And it's ridiculous that the league has a system that would put that as a possibility. It should yeah. not be like that. CFL, make it make sense with your awards and all-stars. Like, let's think about that. The West all-star quarterback and potentially the CFL all-star quarterback is going to be Zach Hilaris, who was not in the running at the division or league level for the most outstanding player in the league. And you're going to have, we all know it, Chad Kelly there from the East division. Like that to me just doesn't make any sense. I mean, some people might argue, well, it's part of the uniqueness of the CFL and this system. It's old and dated. Let's fix it like tomorrow or manana, as my boy George Costanza would say. But also, though, hold on. Yes, we do need to fix the. But but also, if people vote in a nonsensical way, that's on the vote. That's on us as the members of the media, right? Like you 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 just said that Brady Oliver was the best player in the CFL, but not the best Canadian. Like that that that's like saying that oranges are the best fruit or best food, but they're not the best fruit because bananas are better. Like that doesn't uh, he didn't that doesn't make sense. He didn't have that choice though. In front of me, yeah, that's the issue. Gotcha. Right? He he, he didn't have that exactly for most outstanding player. Your example gotcha. is what I'm talking gotcha. about from the league's perspective of what they put in front of some of these voters because I didn't vote for any team at the team level. Gotcha. I just have what's and in front of me true. at the division and, and league level. It's difficult, but they need to fix that. Like the CFL, I think that's on them. Well, and and, and it's largely what the columns could be about, but how much more exciting would awards night be if the candidates for MOP were Brady, uh, Zach Kolaris, and Vernon Adams Jr.? Or, or maybe Kelly. it's the th- – or. or well, you could go four if you want, but if I, I'm just throwing out three, because then the conversation is, well, do we vote for quarterbacks too much? Or, well, are, are, is Winnipeg, is, is that vote going to be split because you got two bombers and only one lion? Or, or, right, like there's a bunch of intrigue versus on awards night. Like we were all there in Regina last week. Food was delicious, by the way. But the actual awards themselves were not interesting because yeah. almost all of them were like, Oh, Dalton shown against Tyson Philpot. I wonder who's going to be most outstanding rookie. And then like one clown votes for Tyson Philpot just to make it not unanimous. Okay. Hodge to your point overall, I think is what we're all getting at. And just to really drive it home even more, we're talking about the most outstanding def- defensive players in the West division, let's say, right. And with all due respect to Larry Dean, is no business being in that conversation. No, none. And there's so many instances of that throughout the league where there could be a better representation of that. And I think that that is just sorely being missed where you have like these little nuances that are fun, right? Oliveira and Dembski become the first pair of Canadian teammates to have a thousand yards in the same season together. Both those guys should be up for most outstanding Canadian. And that debate and talk surrounding it would be so much better than we have it now where... Dembski ain't even getting a look because it's obviously going to be Oliveira when you put it up against each other, but they should be finalists for that award. I know we've said it a bunch of times, but it seems like it needs to be driven home for the CFL to change these kind of things. I agree. And to be entirely frank with you guys, this is not necessarily to call out the other media voters, but I think specifically you mentioned their most outstanding defensive player. And I think the media got it wrong on probably six of the nine teams. And that's not to say the guys who were selected 
were not outstanding. In some cases, I think a guy on their team, if we had this four nominee system, would be in those four nominees alongside them. But there are so many of those most outstanding defensive player nominees where I look at them and I think, wow, like somebody else on this team had a much larger impact. In some cases, multiple players on this team. The and issue there is, the I think, one- you see, is it's so much stat-based, right? Like a it, lot of the yeah. media people, and I don't want to cast aspersions or a wide net, but I think they just go look at the stats and they vote based on the stats. I'll give you an example. Nick Dembski was one of the guys that I had as a West all-star receiver. And some people might go like, what? You didn't just tick off the five boxes of the guys who had the most receiving yards? Because no, his worth value whatever you want to say to that offense in Winnipeg is so much more than just what he does as a receiver he's dynamic and the fact that he can play so many different positions and also run the ball as well in my mind makes him an all-star so I think those are some of the discussions that need to be had as well like your points well taken JC with Gary Peters he should have been at least talked about in that conversation and Larry Dean should not have I I will throw one more out of there in the East division I voted for DeMonte Coxie as an all-star over Jalen Acklin and Justin Hardy, both Same. of whom had more yards. And the reason was DeMonte Coxey in a very competitive receiving core was out here mossing guys week after week <laughs> when he got an opportunity, whereas Jalen Acklin and Justin Hardy were like catching timing routes, you know, and, and then kind of falling down because that was Ottawa's offense this year. And it was largely based like, like their, their production was not based on defeating their opponents. Their production was based on, okay, we're, we're just going to kind of scheme you open on second and 10 and you'll get your eight yards. And then we'll punt again because we're Ottawa. And that's what I think a chunk of it was game script too, right? Hodge Ottawa was down a lot. They had to throw the football. Demonte Coxie was not with Toronto. Imagine. There was no one else in the receiving court. Yeah, there's yes. no one else to the receiver. Yeah, who else are you going to throw to if you're not throwing to Justin Hardy or Jalen Acklin? The answer is nobody. So that sometimes the numbers can be artificially inflated. I get you there. All right. Dunk, you exclusively reported that the Ottawa Redblacks pending free agent list this week. Of all the names on it, which one do you think the Redblacks have to get re-signed the most. JC, you're going to hate this, and part of the reason this dude is my answer is because you stole mine, but that's fine. Devontae Williams is going to be my guy, and part of the reason I'm saying that is because I think Ottawa has kind of struggled to find a running back after William Powell fell off a cliff, and he becomes a 1,000-yard rusher, which is sexy, and that's all great and stuff, but I think he's dynamic, and I think it can be a value signing. Right, We're not going to see him you know, crack $200,000. He'll probably get a pay bump over $100,000. But I think what he can do for this offense in the future and growing with Dustin Crum can be really exciting. And that's, as weird as it sounds, a part of the reason why I think they need to resign him. He's, He's a guy that you can sell to that fan base. He is a guy that is going to be flashy, who you can put his highlight reel out there from the season and hopefully get more fans in Ottawa to buy tickets there. And oh, by the way, I think he'll help you win games. So JC, feel free to crucify me for that, but I'll go with Devontae Williams. And man, he's got that Canadian flag chin strap cover. Like I'm down with that. That's old school, a little bit of Canadian swag and also representing the country that he plays in or respecting, I should say, the country that he plays in. So I like that. I like Williams a lot, don't get me wrong, but I will just say this. It's never a wise idea to pay big money for a running back, particularly I didn't say big an money. American value running back. value contract. 
don't know. Good I, luck getting that. I pay, paying a running back like a quarterback would be stupid. Paying a running back, <laughs> paying a very good running back a hundred k is is what every good team has ever done. So that there's nothing wrong with that. Glad. Calgary Stampeders a, a good team right now. Uh, no, not right now. That, that's been their philosophy. Well, they paid Kadeem Carey a bunch oh, of money oh. last year, and he was almost MOP. So mm-hmm. it, it, he it wasn't was almost MOP. Yeah, he was. Come on now. Was, was was got, now. He got what hurt. You pay Brady Oliveira, JC. Brady Oliveira is a slightly different equation for yeah, me Canadian. because he's Canadian. He's Canadian so it, it it makes a difference. Still, I in the same Brady Oliveira mold, and I love Brady Oliveira. I think he's my he had my vote for MOP, but he was also a second round pick in the Canadian draft and a guy I loved at the time. I thought he was capable of this. Then I think you can find those guys every couple of years. And if I was right, oh, yeah, you could just, yeah, make sense. You could just if, find <laughs> Canadians who can run. If, That's fine. If, yeah. There's all over if, the place. If, really. If I was running a team, I would make running back a Canadian position and I would draft the best one available every single year. And I would never give a second contract. I would have a stable of three Canadian running backs. And I just, cycle through them and that's how I'd run my team. Yeah, cuz we all know that Brady Oliveira was amazing in his first couple years in the CFL and uh, hey, he, he wouldn't have to be. He'd be behind the two guys I drafted the last 2 years. Not and then that third year he would break out and then I'd let someone else pay him and I'd have a guy behind him. This is nonsense garbage. Um I'd like pay- to see the test case though. I, I will say this. I, I, I would imagine Brady Oliveira is going to check in around Nick Dembski money, which would be in the high 100s, close to 200. If I was the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, I would put $250,000 on the table for Brady Oliveira, and I would do it one minute after the legal tampering period opened. Well, actually, that's not true. I would do it right now. And then I would put it on paper in the first minute of the legal tampering <laughs> period because that's how the CFL actually works. But if you're going to, first of all, that'd be a great way to ignite Saskatchewan's offense. I think it would be a great way to potentially stick it to a heated rival. And I think it would be a great way, even if you don't get them, to force Winnipeg to pay him top dollar. Because if you've got a $250,000 off in your back pocket, you maybe don't need to get $250,000 to stay in Winnipeg. Brady Oliveira has strong ties to the city. He's already on the record as saying he wants to be a member of the Blue Bombers where they host the Great Cup in 2025. But I think that that's something the Saskatchewan Rough Riders should do. But getting back to the question at hand, Brandon Danridge is the player who the, the Ottawa Red Blacks should sign the most. Frankly, the give a blank factor in Ottawa was not high enough this year at times that effort level looked embarrassing from disinterested players who seem to be happy and complacent losing together. And if you don't think that's true, I would encourage everybody to listen to the hour long show that Sean Burke, the club's GM did on TSN 1200 this week, where he is clearly unhappy with the vast majority of his team. I'm not going to put words into his mouth. Listen to the interview yourself but to me Brandon Dadridge is one of few players in Ottawa where week in week out you can see not only that the effort and passion level is there but he's also a guy who can contribute on defense as a corner at halfback as a physical guy and also can really bring some juice in the return game he had a return touchdown this year for the Red Blacks Devontae Dedman has not done that in a long time right so I think I think Brandon Dadridge is the guy in Ottawa you can help build your defense around him 
you don't necessarily need him to return full time either because Tobias Harris has shown some flashes. Dandridge was fantastic for especially the first half of the year until he got injured, making plays on in every phase where he was playing. And he's only 27 years old. So I agree with you there, Hodge. My guy is also on defense and it's defensive end Bryce Carter because I think he brings a lot of different aspects to your team and to your defense. Not only was he a 12 sack guy, which I think sometimes can get a little bit of inflated. We've talked about that, but a very effective pass rusher. Nonetheless, he's also one of the better run defending defensive ends in the league right now. And so he, he couples those two together. He's, he's a little bit like Jackson Jeffcoat in a lot of ways to me. I don't know if he's ever going to be a guy who leads the sack race, but he's going to be very effective very consistent and going to bring a solid presence to that defense that you can rely on year in and year out. To me, Bryce Carter is the only must sign on that entire team. I need him back in the nation's capital. The U sports playoffs get into full swing this weekend with eight matchups across the country's four conferences. Which game are you most excited for and why? The one I'm most excited for is the Saskatchewan Huskies at the Alberta Golden Bears. This is the Golden Bears' first home playoff game since 2005. And this is a team that knocked off the Huskies twice in the regular season. Now I'll say this, it's going to be hard to knock off that team three times this year. Anton Amendrew, the quarterback for the Huskies, has had issues with the interceptions this year. But if he can keep, keep control of the ball, I do think that the Huskies have a good shot at winning this thing and making it back to a fifth consecutive Hardy Trophy. But that being said, I mean, the, the the Golden Bears have done a great job of running the ball all year. Matthew Peterson's been spectacular. I was at the game at IG Field a couple weeks ago, and he got hurt. And then Opio Shinubi went for almost 200 yards and, and two home run touchdowns. So clearly, Chris Morris has done a great job at Alberta of building that offensive line and getting that run game going. To me, this is going to be the closest matchup of the eight this weekend, and it's certainly got some intrigue with the Golden Bears finally looking to take that next step. This is his team just to set the, the stage a little bit. Alberta could have won Canada West last week with a win over UBC at home in the cold and snow at foot field failed to do so. And they're kind of getting a reprieve here, a second opportunity to win that playoff game. If they win, they'll likely have to go out to Vancouver to play UBC uh, uh, in the, in the championship game. But Still, to me, this is the most intriguing of all eight. I'm taking the Huskies and Golden Bears. For me, it's Queens at Western. And not just for the game that will be on the field, but for all the storylines going into it. First of all, you've got two historic storied rivals, teams that for the last number of years have usually met in the Yates Cup and battled on that stage. Now they're meeting a week early. And there is no love lost between these two teams. They... Queens struggled at the start of this season, but when they went into Western early in the year, that was one of the games of the year anywhere. It took a touchdown to Savon Mangie Jones with, I think, 13 seconds left in that game for Western to win it. A fantastic call if you go back and listen to it on the local London radio station. But clearly, two teams that are very close and Western has lost a lot of their advantage here because 
in their final regular season game, they lost Keon Edwards, their fantastic running back to a broken foot. And Evan Hillock, their quarterback, the guy who made that touchdown pass as time was clicking down in that game, suffered a concussion uh, late in the fourth quarter of their regular season finale. And his status is still undetermined for this game. Western is keeping that very tight to the vest in this occasion. So we don't know whether he will be on the field or whether it will be Jerome Rancourt, the backup quarterback who led them to a victory last week in the, in the dying minutes who has to take the field in this one. Queens also has injuries at their quarterback position, but I think the difference between for and um, I'm blanking on the backups name currently, but the number one and two it at Queens is not nearly as wide as it is from Hillock. Who's one of the best quarterbacks in the country to Rancourt. Who's relatively unproven. So as we go into this game, we'll be watching right to the opening kickoff to see which quarterback steps on the field. And even if it is Hillock without Edwards behind him, is he able to shoulder the load after missing this whole bye week with a concussion to be able to be a team that fought them very hard early in the regular season. It's hard to beat Greg Marshall, though, at playoff time. And really with Queens, if you stop Jared Chisari, their outstanding transfer from mm. UMass, they haven't really shown they've had any other weapons. They've got some intriguing pieces on that defense, but they're going to have to find a way to get it done without Chisari because that's what Western will do. They'll take away your best player. Paul Gleason, defensive coordinator, has been there for a long time with Greg Marshall. I've lived it myself. I've had to deal with it in games and they're going to have to force you or sorry, they are going to force you to try to do something different. My game of the week might not be close, but is UBC hosting the university of Manitoba. And the reason is I think it's the best quarterback matchup of the week. Jackson Tachinsky of the Bisons, an outstanding dual threat athlete. This guy played basketball at a high level while he was in high school in Manitoba, you know, thought about, continuing doing dual sports at university but after one year on the basketball team the last year he's probably going to put it aside and continue to focus on just being a quarterback which I think is smart overall this guy has a lot of intriguing skills I'm not saying he's there yet but if he continues to develop especially as a passer and a quarterback overall he could be a guy that could attract CFL interest down the line, still needs a lot of development. And for UBC, they have Garrett Rooker, who for most of the season has looked really good, except for the one game that I saw him in person at Griffith Stadium against the University of Saskatchewan. One of the two games UBC lost on the season, the other one was at University of Calgary. Rooker just didn't look really good. And I think the key for UBC's offense, JC, you'll love this, is Isaiah Knight, the running back. He has to be involved. When he is running well, this offense is very difficult to stop, and it helps Rooker. Rooker has an interesting story. He's come up from Texas. His dad had a connection through being a prophet, Texas A&M, to the Marine Biology Program at UBC. That's how he even knew about it. Their backup quarterback, Derek Engel, is from Texas as well. So you got two Americans there at a Canadian position that is obviously so important, but Rooker's really good. And you got to watch out for those two offensive linemen, Gio Manu and Theo Benedet as well. Those guys are absolute beasts. I'll be calling this game on the Canada West Football Showcase. I'm not just picking it because I'm calling it. I don't think the scoreline will be great, but Manitoba's scrappy. And I'm sure Brian Doby might even use some of this as bulletin board material for his crew. He usually gets his team hyped up. And they've shown in the playoffs that they can pull off upsets and get to the Hardy Cup 
final. So I think it's a really intriguing matchup. And I'm just, you know, honest to actually go out to the West Coast and see what JC's up to. Just for the record. And I'm glad to have you out here, Dunk. But the last time these two teams played, UBC put up a 50-burger. So. Yeah, but Tachinsky didn't start. So I think it could be a little different. Yeah, Tachinsky didn't play that game. And Was, Does Tachinsky play defense? I'm sorry. Does... Is that no. he doesn't is he didn't going both ways? necessarily going to be closed because Manitoba, from my quick research, hasn't won at UBC since 2013. So it's been a while. I think it's going to be an uphill battle. But the fact that the Bisons, you know, we're kind of missing the headline here, or even in the playoffs, is unbelievable. Last week of the regular <laughs> season, they got a win by, I think it was 13 or more, Calgary that was, to get in. The Dinos are up late, literally like next to no time left. Nick Conway takes a fumble and brings it back to the house. Dijon Lejeur gets a two-point convert, and all of a sudden the Bisons are in the playoffs. Like, that play was incredible. It went Canadian football-style kind of viral. It was one of the most shocking finishes I've ever seen, not just in football, but potentially in sport. Like, it was – it is true that the Bisons had a, had a timeout, but if the Dinos had simply knelt – let let Manitoba burn the timeout and then send out their punter to run like a madman. Like they could have taken a safety. They only needed to. They were they were up twenty. They needed to win by four by by fourteen. Like like, yeah, a, a, a shockingly a shockingly bad showcase of judgment from Calgary at the end of that game. But I'll just say one more thing before we move on. Dunk while you're out visiting JC. Have call me on the landline. Call me on the landline. I'd love to get a call on the landline. Let's see if it works, bro. Let's see if it works. Can it reach Manitoba? We'll see. It's now time for Hodges Heritage Moment. On this day in 2016, Mike Pinball Clements was inducted into Canada's Sports Hall of Fame. The versatile player retired with 25,396 all-purpose yards, the highest total in the history of professional football. The William and Mary product was named the CFL's most outstanding player in 1990 and won the Tom Pate Memorial Award twice in recognition for his outstanding sportsmanship. Clemens has won seven great cups, including three as a player, one as a head coach, two as an executive, and one as the team's general manager. He was inducted into the Canadian Football Hall of Fame in 2008, and his number 31 is retired by the Argos. We'll start with Dunk. What does pinball's legacy mean to you? Dude, I remember when I was a kid, the CFL on CBC, watching this guy literally pinball around. If people haven't seen it, and I don't know how you wouldn't be a viewer if you've listened to this podcast, you got to go check him out on YouTube because that was a perfect nickname for him. He was unbelievable. He could run the ball, catch it with the best of them, and return with the best of them as well. He was, I would say, one guy that got me really intrigued in to CFL football and also the Argonauts at the time, they were so great and there was a bunch of stars there, but his legacy goes beyond the CFL. And I think this is something that the league needs to do better with its current players. Pinball Clemens is known widely around the GTA and obviously across Canada, but I'm saying specifically the GTA because there's some people that know pinball more so as a motivational speaker or what he does with his foundation Yes, I know that he used to play football, but he has done very well for himself getting outside of the CFL bubble, if you will, to extend his celebrity, let's say. I don't think he necessarily views it that way, but there are people in 
organizations and corporations and companies around the GTA that I've talked to that are like, you know, have you ever heard pinball talk or what's it like when you actually talk to them? And I get those questions all the time because of how motivational he can be. So I think the CFL needs to at least help develop more marketability, let's say, in their current CFL players and get them just outside of this great CFL bubble that we do live in. Yeah, he transcends this sport and he transcends this league unlike any other figure in the history of Canadian football. And I'm too young to have witnessed Pinball Clemens play the game when he was winning Grey Cups. I was just being born. But I've always been aware of him as this larger-than-life figure that has been around the CFL. And I'm sure... Hodge will will speak to this as well. But when we're at the CFL Combine this year, you know, group of us sitting at a table in the hotel lobby, speaking to people around the league, and you know, we're at a stage now where we have connections, we know everyone, we can speak face to face, and and nobody re- is really larger than us at this stage, right? Nobody gets you starstruck. And then at one a.m., Pinball Clemens walks into the hotel lobby and sits down and all of a sudden everyone at the table, whether they're in the league, whether they're a media member, whether they're an agent, everyone turns and just is in rapture listening to pinball Clemens speak. And that is the respect and the reverence that he commands from every single person around the CFL because of who he was as a player, who he was, who he is as a person and as an executive he is absolutely one of a kind. I can't remember if I've said this on the podcast or not, but I've run into pinball a number of times this year. I ran into him in Halifax, of course. I was there for, of course, the meeting at the Combine. Then I ran into him in Montreal when I was there in September for the Argos Alouettes game. And without thinking, because people around the league call him Penner. So without thinking, I just said, hey, Penner, how's it going? And he said, hey. And then I caught myself and I went, wait a minute. Is it okay if I call you Penner? And he said, yeah, man. And I was like, whoo, I've made it. I've made it. I'm on not just first name basis with Mike Pinball Clemens. I'm on pinner basis with Mike Pinball Clemens. Though I will say this, JC, I'm kind of glad you didn't watch him growing up because you would have thought he's trash. He's just a running back. Like, why bother even pay him? <laughs> what what used to see, you know, you any any guy could you do You can that. find a Pinball Clemens every two years. Huh? I'm just going to draft a Canadian every year who could do exactly what that guy does. It's no different. Anyways, let's go on. Three-minute drill. Here we go. Too good, man. Winnipeg Blue Bombers QB Drew Brown set a CFL record for the most touchdowns thrown, that would be nine, in a single season without any interceptions. Maybe he should teach Bolivar Mitchell about protecting the ball. Surpassing Drew Tate's old mark of seven, should he be a starting quarterback in the CFL next year? I think he should. I know that there are some people who have doubts about whether or not he could be a true franchise guy. You know, kind of similarly to Nick Arbuckle a few years ago, is he just the product of a great system and a great group of talent around him? But I think he absolutely deserves the opportunity to show in 2024 that he can be a starter. Whether or not he succeeds is another story, but I think he deserves the opportunity, unquestioned. Bob Dice is officially back as the head coach of the Red Blacks in 2024. Was this the right move for Ottawa? 
You know, I don't know. I really like Bob Dice. You know, I was happy for him when he got this job. I am happy that he is going to get a second opportunity to prove himself. And clearly there are some games, especially early in the year, where he had an impact in motivating this team. But I ask you this, in the second half of the year, what did you see from the Ottawa Red Blacks that said, hmm, the status quo that's working out just fine. So I have some doubts about this move. Neil Lumsden has said he's not interested in becoming the president of the Edmonton Elks after it was reported that he was a candidate for the job. Is that a surprise, Doc? No, it's not a surprise at all. Lumsden is a smart man, and you have to be savvy if you're going to get into politics. So with him being a Hamilton MPP, he can't be out here talking about wanting the Edmonton Elks job, even if he did want it. It's one thing if maybe the Elks wanted him to be in the mix or were interested in him, but he has to say this publicly, so it's not a surprise at all. Shaggy is going to perform at the CFL Awards in Niagara Falls. Are you looking forward to that performance, Hutch? I am. I I've, I remember Sha- I was I was like middle school age when it wasn't me, when I guess we didn't call it viral at the time, but it, it went viral so, yes, I will be living my 12-year-old dream by watching Shaggy perform as the predictable winners of outdated awards trot across the stage. That'll be fun. Toronto Argonauts tied the Edmonton football team's league record with 16 regular season wins. Does that put them in the conversation for the best CFL team of all time? It absolutely does. And if they can get the job done and do what that 1989 Edmonton team couldn't, which is win a Grey Cup, it's going to be hard to argue that they are not the best CFL team of all time. Maybe not player for player talent wise, but certainly in the way they've separated themselves from the competition around the league. I don't know who would be better than the Argos right now. Henry Burris told CJME in Regina that he's more than interested in Saskatchewan's head coaching job. Do you think he's a legitimate candidate? You know, I don't want to fence it here, but it's hard to answer this right now because as some people around me, around the league, excuse me, have told me, they are wondering, well, you know, what if Scott Milanovic gets promoted in Hamilton or Lionel Steinauer gets kicked upstairs and Milanovic is a head coach and then, you know, Corey Mace politely says thanks but no thanks and maybe Pika Stanza you know doesn't want to go there and Jordan Maximik's okay with staying in BC for another year because you know there's somewhat of an uncertain status around Trevor Harris and his injury and can he stay healthy and if there's a quarterback there and dealing with Jeremy O'Day and the pressure of the fishbowl so some people said well you know what if you start going down that list and then you get to a Henry Burris even though he doesn't have the experience you know, I don't think he necessarily should be a legitimate candidate. That's my own opinion at this time. I think he needs more experience. He referenced Sean McVay in that interview with Jamie Nye of CJME. And I think that is not even a comparison, man. Sean McVay was in the NFL for a long time as a young dude before he got that head coach position with the Los Angeles Rams. So all due respect to Henry Burris, it would be great. Obviously, it would help for clicks and entertainment value and people tuning in if he was a head coach of the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. But he needs, I think, some more coaching experience and just being around pro football on that side of it before becoming the bench boss of any pro team. The Blue Bombers have signed veteran receiver Marquise Ambles to the practice roster. What does that say about the health of one Dalton Schoen? 
Well, I don't think it says any good things about it, but I will say, as much as I still wouldn't rule out the possibility of uh, Dalton Schoen returning in the in the postseason, it should be noted, the Bombers didn't make this move when Dalton Schoen went down. They made this move this past week after it was found that Rashid Bailey on TSN's cameras was caught favoring his right leg. So I don't necessarily think this rules out Sean. Maybe it casts some doubt. But again, the timeline was not such that uh, uh, Sean goes down and the Bombers add Ambles. It was Sean went down a few weeks ago. Rashid Bailey goes down potentially. And then the Bombers add Ambles. So it might just be a general depth move. But maybe I'm just hoping that Dalton Sean plays in the West Final. The Saskatoon Hilltops and West Shore Rebels are set to meet in this year's Canadian Bowl. Which CIJFL team do you see taking the top prize? I've got the West Shore Rebels. I think Dexter Janke, who former CFL draft pick of the Calgary Stampeders, has done a fantastic job as head coach of that team and putting that roster together. But most importantly, they have a quarterback in Tay Jesse who is absolutely unbelievable for that level he was the first cjfl quarterback to take part in the cfl's qb internship alongside u sports qbs he was in bc lions training camp this year he is of that caliber if he was playing college ball he would be among one of the top in the country he is going to show the saskatchewan saskatoon hilltops something they have yet to see out there in the prairie conference which is an elite, elite quarterback. Canadian offensive lineman Dakota Shepley joined the practice roster with the Dallas Cowboys, while Canadian defensive back Jonathan Sutherland signed on to the Seattle Seahawks practice roster. Which player was the better addition? Shepley is a solid offensive lineman. He's played in games, but I think Sutherland probably has more upside here. It seemed like he did really well in rookie minicamp, so... I think that it could be Sutherland, and let's see how it plays out. Audrey reported CFL regular season attendance increased 3% from 2022 to 2023. Is that a positive for the league? Yes, I do think it's a positive. I think with the way the winds are blowing, more and more fans, especially when the weather turns, are likely to stay home. So any increase I do think is notable. And I also think it's extremely encouraging that these numbers are up so much in Toronto, over 20% for the Argos, over 13% for the Lions, right? We've spent the last decade in the media wringing our hands about, oh, well, the the attendance in Toronto, oh, the attendance in BC. Yeah, there's a long way to go still, especially in Toronto, but progress is progress. To me, the disappointing thing would be, or maybe alarming thing, would be that the Calgary Stampeders had their lowest attendance since 1985. That team really needs to make improvements off the field in a bad way. Last one, an independent study indicated that Touchdown Atlantic created $10 million in economic activity. Will that number help finally get a team there? Certainly don't think it's going to push anybody over the top. But it's another feather in the cap of the league in their argument to potential investors and potential owners and potential stadium builders out there in Halifax in terms of here's what we can bring to the table. Does it directly translate to what it would be every week for a regular game day? No, but it is another piece that the league can show to everyone involved to say, hey, this is what needs to happen. Here's what we can bring to you. That does it for this edition of the Three Down Nation podcast. Be sure to tune in next week.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.